0: Movies offer audiences a means to escape the real world. Part of the immense draw and charm for movie fans is the opportunity to see wildly imaginative places and things that they've never seen before. To see creatures and monsters that break the limits of imagination. Sitting in a dark theater, we suspend our disbelief enough to allow ourselves to believe we are witnessing more than just actors making pretend. A great story, striking lighting, and camera angles help only to guide us there's one thing that helps us believe what we are seeing. It's not enough for a film to tell us that an actor is a monster. That film must show us. As an audience, we need to be convinced by one of Hollywood's oldest secret weapons, special effects makeup. The art of turning an actor into a monster is indeed an incredible cinnovation.
1: Talking movies every week. Talking Corey. Imagine, if you will, that you are sitting in a dark cinema in 1937. You're excited to see the new Warner Brothers mystery comedy, Shh! The Octopus. Wait a minute. is Is that an actual title of a real film? It is, and it's pretty fucking terrible. Really? Like, legit, legit title? Really? And stop interrupting. I'm doing something here. So you're watching Shh the Octopus, and as the mystery is unraveling, you're doing the same story math that we all do when watching a mystery. You're recounting all the clues, trying to figure out which of the characters is the criminal mastermind, who is the octopus, and why are they being shushed?
0: Oh, Octopus is a bad guy nickname. That totally makes more sense.
1: Yeah, you gotta keep listening. At the climax of the film, all the story's players are gathered in a lighthouse awaiting the big reveal from our hero detectives. But shh, the octopus has one last trick up its sleeve. The group is attacked by long-reaching tentacles. Everyone is frightened except the nanny, who lets out a menacing cackle. I knew it was the nanny. Only instead of just being a criminal with an aquatic nickname, we get an incredible special effects shot that shows actress Esbeth Dungeon transforming from a harmless nanny into a witch-like octopus creature in one single unbroken shot in real time. No cross-dissolve, no CGI, just a bit of clever makeup and film science.
0: To understand how makeup played an important role in that shot in Shush the Octopus, we first must understand the science behind why makeup was needed for film in the first place. Cameras, after all, they capture the details of reality that's in front of them, right? Well, not quite. Early motion picture film stocks had their limitations, and not just the fact that they were only in black and white. To be fair, this
1: is a pretty significant limitation.
0: (laughs) It is, but the limitations in question here were more connected to how different colors in real life, or more specifically how the light reflected by certain colors, were exposed onto the film's emulsion. Black and white film presents color in a spectrum of gray tones, and different colors have very
1: different results. In the case of Shh, the octopus, the effect was achieved by blocking specific color lights from reaching the film in the camera. The startling octopus makeup is on Esbeth the whole time despite the audience's initial view. The heavily contrasted red makeup that covered her face was blocked from reaching the film via a red light filter in front of the camera lens. Through the course of the shot, that filter is removed allowing the makeup to be visible on film. The resulting shot, especially for 1937, almost breaks your fucking brain. But why red? Can you please tell me, Corey? Well,
0: prior to the late 1920s, the film used for motion pictures was orthochromatic.
1: All about the ortho.
0: And it was sensitive only to a minimal range of colors.
1: Red, orange, yellow. Cool
0: tones like blues and greens looked overexposed and appeared white. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. While warmer tones, like red, would appear underexposed as dark gray or black. Preach. This resulted in a developed image that had a very heavy contrast, and depending on the colors on the set that day, could produce images that were vastly different to the reality that was shot. Newer generations of film stock would attempt to correct this, but but warmer tones still appeared darker than their cooler counterparts. So once the red makeup in the shot for Shush the Octopus was revealed, it naturally appeared darker on film.
1: Unfortunately... Most skin tones fall on the warmer side of the color spectrum, and as a result, faces would appear underexposed and dark. To get a truer appearance of an actor's face, early filmmakers and actors had to science the shit out of it.
0: Is that a technical term?
1: Sciencing the shit out of it? Yeah. I don't know, Corey. You tell me. Hmm. What do you think?
0: I think think it might be a, a technical film term. Yeah, you gotta science the shit out of it.
1: I don't think so. It's a but pre-
0: precursor to fix it in post.
1: <laughs> you can uh, you can talk to, to uh, David Schwimmer the next time you're on the cast of uh, whatever he's doing now. The rosy color of actor's skin tones were often muted with green or blue tinted grease paint to prevent their characters on screen from looking too underexposed. To give natural looking definition to their mouths, yellow was often used for their lips. This color corrective makeup was often customized to individual actors. These odd-looking makeup applications would give actors a more natural-looking skin tone on film and help to show the actors' expressions more clearly. Can you
0: imagine being on a film set back then? Like, you're, you're trying to, to like, be in this dramatic scene. You're trying to act the shit out of it. And, and every actor that's walking around looks like one of those blue cat people from Avatar.
1: I'm sure it looked really weird, but... We do a lot of weird stuff now, like put white dots on people's faces to match the CGI.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's true. In a way, that sort of makes application of makeup and film, in and of itself, an early special effect. The blue and green faces were sort of working like blue or green screens. Only instead of replacing those areas later with a different image, the out-of-place hues corrected the image on the film in real time.
1: During the silent film era of motion pictures, my favorite era of motion pictures, if I was to lie, makeup (laughs) techniques were mostly borrowed from the theater. Actors of the era were largely responsible for applying their own makeup. Like my time in community theater, Jeff. Corey, I didn't know you were in silent film.
0: Oh, community theater. You know, it's kind of like silent film. I didn't have any lines.
1: Gotcha. Film in those early days were considerably the lesser medium. Budgets were tight. So, there weren't dedicated teams for every department. There were some standalone makeup artists like Maximilian Faktorowicz. See the mouse from American Tail? Not at all, Corey. I don't understand that joke. What do you mean by that, Corey? Please explain it.
0: The American Tail character is Feifel Mouskowitz, which sounds
1: very similar to Faktorowicz. Is Feibel Mouskowitz similar to Mrs. Brisby? I don't know what that means. We should press up. <laughs> not Mrs. Brisby from the Rats of Nim. Uh, Are no, they related?
0: I've never seen the Secret of Nim, Jeff.
1: You've never seen the Secret of Nim? No. You don't know who Mrs. Brisby is? I'm. I'm not. And familiar. Jonathan.
0: But I did. And Nicodemus
1: see, when I, when Jonathan almost dies I, or Nicodemus dies I, when they're I, traveling and they're trying to go through the 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 farmer's farmer's little hut. Not a clue, dude. I think making this, American Tail jokes. You've never seen the
0: Secrets of Nim. This is. I think this is. This is the problem. Is around that time a bunch of mouse animated films happened, and you were in one camp or the other.
1: Well, I'm fucking Team Brisby.
0: Team Nim. Yeah,
1: I'm, team Nim. Nicodemus I'm, all the way. I'm Team Mouskowitz. You know what? You know what Nicodemus looked like. I, I don't look like Splinter. No, looked did exactly he? like Splinter. Like su- super shredded? No, he wasn't shredded. Splinter, he looks like Splinter the the shredded. pre the pre Splinter Splinter. <laughs> he was the proto pre we're way off track. <laughs> you probably know Maximilian Factorowitz. Is that what his name is? Factorowitz. Factorowitz. Is that who we're talking about? I think so. Or are we talking about Fiebel? No, apparently okay. not. You probably know Fiebel, or is it Factorowitz? Factorowitz. Okay, you probably know Factorowitz better as the famed cosmetic pioneer Max Factor. Oh yes. Max was notorious for placing lots of makeup inside Kmart and Sears. How many of you are going to Kmart? There's blue light specials. No, just kidding. Max was notorious for insisting only he could apply his cosmetic products to actors. He was a well-sought-after freelancer for the top shelf of Hollywood talent. Additionally, Hollywood's silent-era makeup royalty, George Westmore, had even established the first makeup department at the C-League Polyscope Company in 1917. But for the most part, the majority of actors of the era were sort of on their own. The makeup
0: products adapted from theater consisted mostly of grease paint sticks, rouge, wigs, and faux facial hair applications. Unfortunately, the grease paint sticks commonly used in the theater applied too thick of a coating for practical use on movie sets. In 1914, good old Max Factor, not the mouse, the man, solved that problem by creating a cream-based, flexible grease paint alternative that came in 12 shades and soon became the standard amongst Hollywood's leading actors.
1: By 1918, if you had survived World War I, (laughs) known as the Great War, Factor introduced Color Harmony, a face powder in various shades that could be customized for individual actors and actresses.
0: You know, Jeff, I see myself as
1: a uh, Jean Harlow platinum color myself. Now you're more of a Joan Crawford special medium, a mommy dearest.
0: You know what? Actually, I think you might be right. Even after Factor solved the grease paint problem, there was still an issue with inconsistency in general, because actors in large were still doing their own makeup. Sure, the well-paid principal actors learned quickly how to adjust their makeup techniques. Some were even lucky enough to be in productions with the budget to be made up by professional like Factor or Westmore. And oftentimes... In these early productions, background players and actors in smaller roles would appear alongside the principals with dark gray faces and far less visibility for their expressions.
1: It took a bit of time to have a mouse-like factor actually do your makeup because they have little hands and tiny feet.
0: Yeah, who knew Hollywood, but... <laughs> like Disney, like it, it always started with a mouse.
1: It always started with a mouse. <laughs> but makeup products and their application were ultimately settling in and adjusting to the limitations of the medium. Film suppliers, though, continuously looked for ways to combat the limited scope of color sensitivity for their film stocks. In 1913, Eastman Kodak developed a new type of film stock called panchromatic film that was available only as a special order. This new film stock expanded the sensitivity of light and created a broader contrast range. The increased light and color sensitivity brought a more medium gray hue that was closer to that of blues. Green hues, however, continued to show up closer to white. The difference between orthochromatic and panochromatic films was impressive, but panochromatic films was a more delicate film stock. It needed a completely dark room to process, and because of its limited supply, was so expensive. It wasn't until the 1990s and aughts that we started seeing these hues be used on CSI, CSI Miami, and CSI New York, where they used the blue hues, the orange hues, and many of the other hues, along with really old Who albums. The the (laughs) hues.
0: Uh, As a result of the price, filmmakers didn't really start using the new film until around 1918, and even then, not for much more than exterior landscape shots. Besides, filmmakers knew how to work with the limitations of the old film. They had a system. Panchromatic film could wait. And it was
1: fucking expensive. Yeah,
0: indeed it was. In 1922, nearly a decade after its invention, and after apparently consulting the company Crystal Ball, Eastman Kodak released their Kodak panchromatic cinefilm as a regularly available stock. That year, an adaptation of the horror short story The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, starring Will Rogers, entitled The Headless Horseman, became the first film to be shot exclusively with panchromatic film. Still, it would be another four years before Hollywood would embrace the film stock as standard practice.
1: Because it was fucking expensive. Yeah. Hey, Switches. It cannot be overstated enough how horror films are at the forefront of almost every innovation we cover. I'm calling it. Horror films are the most important genre in film history. All progress is advanced through butt squirming in seats. And I gotta tell you, it is never respected by Hollywood.
0: Once other film manufacturers started selling their versions of panchromatic film in the later 20s, The cost lowered, and the film stock became the new standard. Around the same time, incandescent lights also became an industry standard. Film sets in general were becoming more controlled and consistent environments. As a result, the studios began creating color-to-film conversion charts. These conversion charts helped filmmakers predetermine their grayscale worlds, and were applied to various departments, including set design, costumes, and of course, makeup.
1: The color-to-film charts developed by the studios were also quickly adopted by actors, independent makeup artists, and cosmetic manufacturers. In 1929, after a rigorous six-month testing and development period in which we lost lots of rats, lots of rats, Corey, lots, lots of, rats of rats were tested. Gone. It was crazy. A lot of them died. A lot of them got uh, dengue fever. Yeah. And which was weird because. Makeup doesn't cost dengue fever. I don't know how they all got it. Some of them got syphilis, which is crazy. (laughs) crazy. I don't know what those scientists were doing to the rats, but they all got syphilis. It's crazy. Anyway, in 1929, Max Factor introduced a makeup specifically for shooting with panchromatic film. Factor's toils at creating quality black and white film makeup for Hollywood proved a success, and soon Max and his new product were marketed as a gold standard of makeup for the film industry. There is a bit of a dispute here, however. Purse Westmore, the head
0: of the makeup department at Warner Brothers and the second eldest son of the aforementioned George Westmore...
1: I think he also had syphilis.
0: They all had syphilis, Jeff.
1: (laughs) It was the 20s. It was the 20s.
0: The roaring 20s. Yes. Lots of syphilis. Anyway, old Purse Westmore there is said to have developed his own panchromatic-compatible makeup as early as 1926, but in the end... It was Max Factor that would ultimately be given an Academy Award for his cosmetic cinnovation.
1: During the silent era... We're back to the silent era? We're still in the silent era. Okay. We haven't left it. All right. Not yet. During the silent era, when the rats of NIM still lived on the farm, they hadn't moved yet.
0: (laughs) Didn't they all die in in the factory testing from syphilis?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, that was their grandfathers and grandmothers. okay, okay, okay.
0: During the silent... That's why they lived on the farm. Right, okay, that makes sense. That's the prequel. All right, I got to see this movie. In in the Rats of
1: Nim, Nim actually stands for, like, the National Institute of... Makeup testing? (gasps) (laughs) Makeup and hair removal. Okay. During the silent film era, there was an actor, one actor in particular, whose makeup kit was almost as famous as he was. This actor became the ultimate master of disguise. Throughout the 1920s, Lon Chaney would become one of the first major pioneers of special effects makeup. His talent for using makeup to alter his appearance, such as the twisted face of Quasimodo in 1923's The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and the ghoulish and probably the most recognizable depiction of Eric in The Phantom of the Opera in 1925, earned him the nickname, The Man of a Thousand Faces.
0: For some of his applications, Cheney would contort parts of his face, like his eyes and cheeks, with various appliances including hooks, fishing line, spirit gum, and tape. He also is one of the first actors to use early contact lenses. The often crude nature of his makeup techniques were not without their consequences. Cuts and scarring became par for the course. The false eye application he used for the twisted face in The Hunchback led to Cheney developing vision problems that would require him to wear corrective glasses for the remainder of his life.
1: Lon Cheney was so effective at changing his face with makeup that in the 1920 film Outside the Law, he portrayed a pair of characters in the same scene wherein one of his characters shoots the other. Damn. This was, this was. He murdered himself on screen, that's awesome. He murdered himself. (laughs) His successful makeup transformation propelled him at the box office. With over 160 credits to his name from 1913 to 1930, Cheney was a force to be reckoned with. By the mid-20s, movie studios were beginning to search for their own Lon Cheney to lead their new makeup departments. But was there a new makeup innovator even out there that could pick up the baton and create an iconic impact at the same level... That Cheney had created? The first real opportunity
0: would come with the 1928 film, The Man Who Laughs. In 1925, Lon Cheney was originally set to star in and presumably craft his own makeup for the film as a follow-up to the success of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Unfortunately, Universal failed to attain the movie rights to the original French book, and Cheney was by contract allowed to pick his replacement film. That replacement film was The Phantom of the Opera.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, that one. Following the success of Phantom, the head of Universal, Carl Lemly, went to work to officially get the rights secured for The Man Who Laughs as the studio's next big gothic horror super production.
1: This time around, Lon Chaney was replaced with a slew of German expressionists, including director Paul Lenny, who cast The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, actor Conrad Veidt. In the lead role, Gwynplaine. In the role of Gwynplaine that was originally held for Chaney, the main character in The Man Who Laughs is defined by his oddly terrifying rictus grin. With Chaney no longer attached to the project, Lemley turned to Jack Pierce, the new head of Universal's makeup department, to come up with a way to bring the exaggerated smile to life.
0: Pierce, a former actor and stuntman who had hung up his hopes at being a silver screen star in order to pursue a career in makeup, As you do. As you do. Had impressed Lemley with his work a couple of years earlier when he transformed actor Jacques Lerner into a talking monkey in 1926's The Monkey Talks. The titles of some of these things. Oof. His work crafting the terrifying smile for the man who laughs was incredibly effective. The look he created with the wide, almost painful-looking smile outlined with dark lips would later become the main inspiration for the most iconic of Batman's rogues villain, the Joker. By the end of the 20s, Jack Pierce was certainly nipping at Cheney's heels.
1: Lon Cheney's untimely death in 1930 not only marked an abrupt end of his reign as king of effects and character makeup, but in a way, sort of marked the end of the actor-driven makeup era. By the start of the new decade, the film industry as a whole was progressing into the next phase of its evolution productions and film sets were becoming standardized film stocks were more versatile sound was almost instantly the new norm and makeup departments had sprouted up in every studio the next decade of special effects makeup was up in the air and jack pierce was poised to be the next artist to carry the torch until He was attacked by the rats of Nim. (laughs) And the the ghost of Lon Chaney. (laughs) And the ghost of Lon Chaney.
0: Universal leapt at the opportunity with Pierce to fill the void of grotesque and scary character makeup that audiences had become accustomed to in the wake of Chaney's death. At the turn of the decade, Lemley greenlit a host of films starring heavy hitters like Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi that would play into Pierce's expertise and jumpstart The Rise of the Universal Monster. Dun, dun, dun.
1: Pierce was responsible for the now iconic looks of Dracula and Frankenstein's monster, the mummy, and the wolfman. And while Lugosi insisted on applying his own makeup for Dracula in 1931, it was based off of Pierce's design, including a widow's peak that would become the signature element of Pierce's work. Karloff, on the other hand, found a great collaboration in Pierce. Karloff and Pierce hit it off so well that they continued their collaboration to create a truly terrifying look for doing the mummy only a year after doing Frankenstein's monster.
0: To create these now classic horror looks, Pierce used materials like mortician's wax and putty to build up noses, chins, and brow ridges. Ew. I know. D- dead people wax.
1: For the mummy? Yeah, right? <laughs>
0: to create these undead creatures, he used dead people wax? Yep. It's very... Uh, on the nose
1: yeah, that's a dad pun that a,
0: that bad. I'll put that back up on the wall he also used a combination of cotton and a sticky substance called collodion in multiple layers to build up more extreme facial structures such as the monster's pronounced forehead collodion was also used to create the appearance of scars and torn flesh the process took hours to apply and hours to remove every day from scratch At the time, materials like collodion needed heavy chemicals like ether to remove. The repeated process of using such harsh materials and removal agents was enough to leave permanent scarring on Boris Karloff's
1: skin. Chaney was putting hooks on his eyelids. Karloff was killing himself with chemical burns. sounds like makeup was about as safe as those early sticks of dynamite. I mean squibs. Or the arrows were shooting into or people's Or the arrows. arrows that
0: they're shooting into people's chests, yeah. Seriously, man. Makeup fucks some people up. Yep. It eventually gets safer, but not for a while. The unregulated early days of film was like a real devil's playground.
1: I mean, actually, the early filmmakers are kind of dicks. Right? Yeah. <laughs> they were,
0: like... The maiming and death and just like bodily harm that went into everyday productions. I'm actually is, surprised
1: more people didn't die. It's astounding. Pierce's process of meticulously rebuilding these terrifying movie monster appearances every shooting day may have been time consuming, but the results were undeniably impressive. For generations to come, his creations would be seen as the gold standard for these iconic horror characters oftentimes when we think of these characters like Dracula the monster the mummy we think of them as the way Jack envisioned them even if some of what makes them so iconic wasn't exactly Pierce's intention case in point Corey what color is Frankenstein's monster
0: first off it's pronounced Frankenstein and he is green
1: you would think so since that's basically how he's been depicted for the last 80 or so years. But according to how Mary Shelley described him in her book, he has translucent yellow skin. In fact, the original poster for the 1931 film even showed the monster with a sort of similar gray-yellow skin tone. Remember those color-to-film conversion charts that are now standard use at film studios? Well, Jack Pierce was a master at creating the right tones for the screen. To distinguish his undead characters like Dracula, and the monster from the characters on the screen that were living, Pierce used muted green tone for their skin color. Even with panchromatic film, green still showed up nearly pure white. Making those characters green gave them the pale, lifeless complexion Pierce intended on the screen. Years later,
0: as color production stills from subsequent Frankenstein sequel films showed Karloff with green skin became public, The novelty of the monster having been green the whole time sort of fused with the zeitgeist. There have been a handful of times where the monster has been depicted more in line with Shelley's original description, notably Robert De Niro's turn as the reanimated creature. But for the most part, he's green. And we have Jack Pierce and the limitations of black and white film to thank for it.
1: For the majority of his tenure at Universal, Jack remained old school in his methods. While he helped advance the art form with his incredibly creative character makeup, his methodology and practices were still very much rooted in the techniques borrowed from the theater. By the end of the 30s, a new invention began making its way onto movie sets. This new product, which is still widely used today, would revolutionize the field of special effects makeup just as significantly as Max Factor's flexible grease paint and panchromatic cosmetics. The shift into the next phase of cinovation, coupled with his reluctance to fully embrace the future of makeup, would eventually turn Jack Pierce, from Hollywood's premier special effects makeup artist, to a relic of the previous age.
0: On the next episode of Cinovation's Special Effects Makeup, A new decade and beyond in film makeup steps out of the shadows of black and white film and into the merry old land of color, where makeup techniques, products, and practices make a dramatic turn toward the future. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cinevations. Be sure to join us for part two of our journey through the history of special effects makeup and its many, many
1: Cinevations. Remember to follow us on Instagram at SwitchTheEnvelope or on Twitter at SwitchEnvelope. And our Twitter at SwitchEnvelope.
0: Go see an old horror film, especially one of those universal monster movies. And we'll see you later, Switches.
1: See you later, Switches. Talking movies. Hosted by Jeff and Corey. Cinnovations is a Switch the Envelope production. Cinevations is written and produced by Jeff and Corey. All episodes of Switch the Envelope are mixed and mastered at Studio 85.